Now, this is the third message in our series, and when I preach a series, I don't often say this, but the sequence of messages thus far is important, okay? The first message I talked to you about building your life on the right foundation. There are a lot of foundations people build on, but there's only one true foundation to build your life on. The Bible says that's Jesus Christ. The second message, last week, we talked about the battle for your mind. There is a war going on. It's a spiritual war going on for your mind, to control your mind the way you think. And we sometimes, I I think, misrepresent. We think, well, there's just a lot of different ideas out there. It's more than that. There's more than what's going, what what we may perceive. It is a a behind-the-scenes kind of attack and battle for your mind. We talked about that last week. And today, this next message is a part of a very important sequence. I'm actually going to begin dealing with one of the religious myths. This series is all about, um, you know, learning how to discern truth from uh, from error. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people today that are talking about what truth is and what truth is not. For example, just this past week, a, a liberal progressive member of Congress called for the formation of a commission to, and I quote, rein in misinformation. And one uh, uh, one, uh, uh, media columnist uh, said, well, we need to unpack what what are they really saying. And in response to that, he says, uh, what I discern is that she wants to basically establish a ministry of truth here in the U.S. to determine what truth is and what truth is not. And then he asked the, the important question, so if you have a ministry of truth or if you form a truth committee to uh, determine, you know, what is accurate and what is not accurate. Who picks the committee? And uh, that's the, I I think, the important question. Uh, This whole series is about how to know what is true and not true. And frankly, we don't need a government committee uh, or truth police to tell us what truth is. The fact is, we've already received the ultimate source book of truth, God's amazing, magnificent book, the Bible. And that's why we need to understand uh, the particulars of this book and, and what this book really represents to us. There's a lot of misbelief about the Bible. So what I want to do today is I want to deal with the first myth that leads to unbelief. And that's why I said this is important in the sequence. And the reason why, if you don't get uh, right this book, you're not going to get any of the other things, other truths uh, or myths out there. You're not going to be able to discern uh, those. Now, just relax for a second. When you look at your outline, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover point number one and only point number one in the message uh, today. So relax when you see the subpoints and all of that. We're not going there. It'll be a couple more weeks. Now, next week, I'm taking a break. I'm going to, uh, I, I'm going to preach on a, a specific matter and uh, so it'll be a couple of weeks out before we finish this up. So uh, just remember that. We're going to come back to the rest of, of this message. But today I want to begin talking about what I believe is the first myth um, in our culture today as it relates to the Bible. And by the way, there are many people in our churches who have swallowed this whole idea or this myth And I put it there on your outline. Look at it. The Bible is just one of many religious books full of stories and myths, but irrelevant to most of modern uh, living. And we hear that in some form. It may not be phrased exactly like that, but we hear that a a lot out in our world today. Oh, the book, the Bible's just an ancient book. It may have been good back in its time, but it's, we're long past that time and, and anything it can offer is not practical or relevant. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and there's a reason for that, as I'll get to in this message and the next couple of messages related to it. But if you don't get this right, if you don't get this one right, if you don't correct this myth, you're going to be an easy victim for the misbeliefs and lies that are propagated in your world today and by others. Ben o. Mueller uh, Hill was a professor uh, at the University of Cologne in, in the genetics department. And he tells about how one morning when he was in high school, uh, he stood last in a line of 40 students in his schoolyard. And here's what's going on. His physics teacher had set up a telescope, and there were some uh, planets that they could bring into focus in that telescope and the moon. And he wanted his students 
to be able to look. So they're out there, they've got the telescope set up, and the first student steps up to look through the telescope, and he says, I don't see anything. And his teacher says, well, that's because you're nearsighted, so you've got to adjust the, you know, the, the focus and everything on the telescope. And if you'll adjust that, you'll be able to see something. So he fiddled with it for a couple of minutes. The, the student did and said, oh, okay, I see the planet and the moon. Next student. And uh, so the next student gets in line and, and uh, he looks through it and uh, he says to the teacher, yeah, I see the planet and the moons. And this happened... <laughs> for 38 students. Boom, they get up there, they say, yeah, I see it. Yeah, I see the, the planet. And they went through this, and this professor saying, I was the last one, and he said, everybody saw the planet and the moon until it got to the guy right before me, and he began to look through the telescope, and he said, I, I can't see anything. I, I don't see anything at all. And the professor says, come on, man. He said, you know, you got to learn to adjust the the, the lens and the focus and all that. And, and so he adjusted it and everything. And then he said, I still don't see anything. I, I don't see any planet or moon. And rather exasperated, the, the teacher said, move, let me look in there. And so the teacher looked down in there and he adjusted everything and all he could see was black. There was, uh, everything was black. And finally he raised up with a little puzzled look on his face. And then he looked at the telescope and he realized that the lens cover was still on the front of the telescope and here's what had happened all of these students except that next to the last one had just said what the teacher wanted them to say okay there must be a planet moon in there I don't see it but I'm gonna say yeah I saw it because everybody else saw it that's kind of a, a picture a snapshot of the way our culture does a lot of time well I I don't see that that doesn't look like the truth to me but if everybody else thinks it's true then I'm going to swallow it too and I just want to say to you this morning that there are a lot of people trying to determine truth with the lens cap on. And they're just kind of going along with the flow of everything. This is what everybody says, so it must be, it must be true. They're trying to understand the deep things of the universe through a telescope with the lens cap on. Now, the Bible is our telescope, and we look through the Bible, the Scriptures, to find truth. And the Bible becomes the lens that shines light into our hearts and into our minds, and it transcends opinions and ideas and myths of humanity. You know, there are a lot of opinions. You hear things like this. We all hear things like this in the world today. Well, this is my opinion, and you have a right to your opinion, and this is my truth. This is a common phrase. You have your truth, and I have my truth. The fact is, we can't all have differing truths. You either have truth and non-truth, but you don't have, you have your truth, you have your truth, you have your truth, you have your truth. Everybody has their own truth, and that's okay for all of you. You can't have that. There is truth, and there's non-truth. Or there's truth, and there's myth. There's truth, and there's lie. There's variation. That's why Jesus said, I am the truth. The truth. That's a definite article in the Greek. It doesn't mean I am a truth or I am your truth, it means I am the truth. And, there, and so if you want to know what truth is, you always, we talked about it last week, you filter it against God's Word. So, but you have to understand God's Word. You have to understand why this book is so significant to us. And so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, this first point. If you're physically able to do so, why don't you stand with me this morning as we read God's Word in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 12 and so follow along with me. Paul is writing here. He's writing to a guy named Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor. And Paul is writing to give him some instruction on, in, in, a, in an age, quite frankly, that was a lot like the world you and I are living in, in a culture that was almost identical to the world. There were so many different pagan uh, uh, religions, and there were so many different uh, ideas on what was real and what wasn't real, what was true and what wasn't true. He's writing to this young pastor because he wants this young pastor to understand why, this, why the Word of God was so important and so important to his people. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, hang on just a second. The focal 
part of this passage is verse 16 and 17. So why did I break in and include all this other part of the text? Because it is context leading up to why the Word of God is so important. Did you notice he said, you know, uh, the bad will go from bad to worse and it's just going to keep getting worse? He's talking about in that day the culture that they were living in, again, a lot like ours. But here's the operative thing that he says as it relates to that in verse 13. Look at this. Um, the uh, uh, imposters will go on, imposters speaking what they say is true versus what isn't, is actually true. They'll go from bad to worse, but look at this, deceiving and being deceived. So why does Paul tell them they need to understand the Word of God? Because without it, guess what? You're a victim of deception. Uh, that's essentially what Okay, so go on, verse 14. But as for you... Watch this. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. What you know to be truth, that is from uh, the words of Christ, continue in those things. That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter what the world is saying out there. What you have learned, he says, continue in that. All right? Because there are going to be competing uh, ideologies out there. All right. Go on. Verse 15. And from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we thank you for your word, this magnificent book that you have delivered to us, Father, unlike anything anything uh, in history and unlike any other book ever written. We thank you for it. And would you take its words now? And would you, Father, speak them into our heart? Father, would you guard my words? And may they be uh, filled and anointed with your Holy Spirit. And Father, would you transform us with the living word this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. Thank you. And you can be seated. Now, the simple point that Paul is making in this text is, is this, that the Bible originates with God. The Bible originates with God. And, and frankly, that's why people through all the ages have attacked the Bible, and many have invested Herculean efforts to try to discredit or undermine the message uh, that the Bible brings to us. And, and why have they done that? Because the fact is, if the skeptic or the person who tries to undermine the scripture ever admits that this is the word of God, guess what? Then it means God gets to set the rules. And it means that some of the things they want to be true aren't true. And it means they have to submit their life to it. So for, look, not just years, but for thousands of years, there have been those who have tried to undermine the truth of this book. And that's why it's important that we understand it. Um, you may be wondering, does it really make a difference though? I mean, to me, you may say, well, I'm a Christian and I, I'm good with it, but does, does it really make a difference from day to day in my life? Well, absolutely. Because you see, we have to have this reliable source of truth that transcends our own opinions. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Let's say we, we, differ, we have these opinions about religious things. And so you share your opinion, and maybe it's like a family discussion at the holidays. Here's what I believe, and here's what I believe, and you know, you, everybody's got their opinion, everybody's weighing in. Which opinion, in the end, becomes the right opinion? Well, usually the way it goes is, well, you just believe what you want, and I'll believe what I want, and, and let's, just, let's just don't discuss it, okay? And... We understand that. But in our hearts, we know somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong. Hello? What we usually do is just say, let's just connect from the conversation or something, and you can believe what you want, and I believe what I want. And you can't prevent, and I'm not even suggesting that you prevent somebody from believing something. But I am going to say to you, here's why we have to have a source that's higher than us. We have to have an authoritative source that transcends our opinions or our thoughts, right? So there has to be, because I can argue my opinion, you can argue your opinion, I can argue what I think is true, you can argue what you think is true. So in the end, there has to be some source 
that says, yeah, but my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways. Guess what? That's the scripture. So the scripture, you, the scripture has to be written by an authority that transcends the ideas and thoughts of man. Does that make sense? And so that's why the script, it's so important that we, we understand the scripture. In fact, as I said, if you don't get this right, you, you're just probably not going to get much else settled about the kinds of myths in our culture. For example, your salvation depends on the Word of God. P uh, Peter writes and says uh, that you've been born again by the Word of God. So you got to get this right. Um, Jesus said your spiritual maturity depends on it. He said, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Listen, your Word is truth. And your fruitfulness depends uh, upon it. Uh, you've been given the Word of God so that you can be a workman. He said it in the passage we read that does not need to be ashamed. And listen, your eternal confidence depends on the veracity of this, this book. Because John wrote in 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So you need to be certain that the Bible is not just some ancient, irrelevant book written by a bunch of different people, but you need to know that it is the very Word of God. And so I want to, if you will, I want to take the lens cap off over the next couple of messages about this. And I want to show you three things about the amazing, the incredible, the magnificent book of God. The first thing I want you to see is the inspiration of God's Word. Look at verse 16 again. All Scripture, your translation may say, is inspired by God, or it may say, as mine does, the ESV is breathed out by God. And um, this is what makes the Bible different from any other book. It is God-breathed. We call that inspiration. It is God-breathed. Uh, that means it was recorded through the inspiration of God, literally as God, through His Holy Spirit, literally breathed His truth upon its writers. Now, some say, yeah, but it's still written by men. Yes, it was still written by men, but the Bible tells us exactly how God used men and used their personalities and their dispositions to communicate his truth. In 2 Peter it says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, are you listening, when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's not some, uh, some men just sitting down saying, hey, I got an opinion, I think I'm going to write that down. That's not at all what's going on. What's happening here is a supernatural process of inspiration. And this inspiration isn't like, you know, some writer who says, what caused you to write that book? I don't know. I just felt inspired. That's a kind of fleshly kind of inspiration or motivation. That's not what we're talking about in the Scripture. We're talking about a supernatural move of God upon those who penned what we call Scripture today. God moved upon them. It says, with his Holy Spirit there in the book of Peter. In fact, when it says he moved on these men, he breathed upon them the truth, he used their personalities, but he protected his truth working through them. Does that make sense? And so they penned this, so it's secure and safe and it's from God. But the word there for when it says God moved these holy men is a maritime word. And it's, it is a picture of, of, of a ship that puts its sails up and the wind fills the sails and the sails move the ship. And that's what Peter's saying. So what happened is God had the vessel, these humans, and he became the wind that moved them with truth. The vessel didn't move itself. The vessel was available and the Spirit of God moved through these holy men to pin this truth. So that's what Paul is talking about when he means inspiration. And that's what makes the scripture so reliable. And by the way, it's all inspired, all of it. It's not partially inspired. It's not progressively inspired. And you don't get to pick and choose which sections and what you like and what you don't like. Listen, it's all inspired. I remember having a conversation with a, a, a pastor years ago uh, when we were debating this uh, whole idea of the inspiration of Scripture, and I asked him, do you believe that the Bible is inspired 
in its entirety. It's infallible. That means it can't err, that, that God didn't mess up or God didn't say, oh, well, I made a mistake. And that's a, that it's fully, we say, plenarily, uh, infallibly inspired from Genesis to Revelation. This is his answer to me. He said, well, he said, I believe the Bible's inspired when it speaks in matters of faith and practice and salvation. Now, that sounds like a pretty good answer, doesn't it? I mean, if someone said that to you, you, you might think, well, that's pretty good. The Bible is infallible. It's inspired when it speaks in matters of faith and practice, how we live, and, and uh, salvation. But that's not what he was saying. He was skirting the question. And finally, I said, so you don't really believe that all of it is inspired, just the sections that speak about faith and practice and salvation. I said, that's what you're really saying. And finally, he, he admitted, yeah, that's what I, I'm saying. But, but I said, so it's only inspired in spots, right? And he kind of hem hawed. said, so here's my question to you. That's partial inspiration. I said, so here's my question to you. Who inspired you to pick out the inspired spots? You see, because what he was really saying is if, if it's only partially inspired, I have or me and whoever have a greater inspiration than the people that penned it because we know what's, what, what we accept as legitimate and illegitimate. I said, so you, you put yourself on the same level with God himself in terms of determining the veracity of Scripture. Listen, dear friend, I want you to know something. The Bible is fully inspired from Genesis all the way to the very end. Somebody said this, I believe it from, from the content page to the concordance page. I may be pushing a little bit, but from Genesis to the end of Revelation, it is God's Word. And that's what makes it so reliable uh, to us. It's not partially inspired. You don't get to pick and choose. Now, the reason I, I spent a little time there is because out in your world today, there is a lot of this thinking. Well, I accept some of the Bible, but not all of the Bible. And that's a kind of a, a, a cultural kind of um, approach to the Scripture. Well, I think there's a lot of good stuff in the Bible. But there's some stuff that, you know, the Bible is, is just too... Uh, it, it just goes too far on. I was sharing with our staff in um, our staff meeting this week a passage where Jesus spoke some hard words, and then it says, as a result of that, many of his followers walk with him no more. And by the way, Jesus never hesitated to say, here's the truth, I'm going to speak the truth. You may not like the truth, but this is the truth. And there were those who said, I can't, I can't, I can't go down this road because I, I don't agree with him. And so... Many of them walk with him no more. But Jesus didn't say, no, no, y'all hang around, and I'll try to teach something to make you feel better. The truth is truth. Sometimes it's really stuff that ministers to our heart, and sometimes it's stuff that convicts us of our life. Hello? And you can't just take the, the good stuff and throw out the stuff that makes you uncomfortable, but much of our culture uh, does just that. Dr. R.G. Lee uh, many years ago, described the Bible uh, like this. He says, it is the, the Bible is above and beyond all books. Uh, uh, he says, it is supernatural in or origin. It is eternal in duration. It is inexpressible in value. It is immeasurable in influence. It is infinite in scope. It is divine in authorship. It is human in penmanship. It is regenerative in power. It is infallible in authority. It is universal in interest. Uh, it is personal in application. It is inspired in its uh, totality. This is the book that has walked more paths, traveled more highways, and knocked at more doors, and spoken to more people in their mother tongue than any other book this world has ever known or ever will know. And they, that's true. That's not an embellished statement. It, it, it is uh, true. The inspiration of Scripture is validated by many evidential proofs. Uh, for example, and I'm not going to go into all of these, but did you know in the Old Testament alone there are over 300 prophecies concerning uh, the coming Messiah, where he would be born, how he would die? Over 300 of them. Now listen to this. Every one of them were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
There are those who have taken those 300 and then shown where it was fulfilled, where it was fulfilled, where it was fulfilled. You know, that just doesn't happen in, in a, a, a non-supernatural book. But over 300 prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ ever came on the scene talk about what, uh, who he would be, where he would be born, uh, how his life would be lived out. That's the kind of evidence that the Scripture presents. But I want to show you some things. You'll see this on your, your outline then. I want to get real specific about some kinds of, of evidence that's out there. For example, there's plenty of historical validation that this book is a supernatural book from God. The Bible is a history book. It really is full of prophecies and stories and events the question always is, but did these things really happen, or are they just fiction and fairy tale? Well, many secular historians love to say that the Bible is not reliable because it is historically inaccurate. But friend, I want to tell you something. Time and time and time again, the Bible has proven to be one of the greatest history books of all time with evidence to support that. So I want to give you a few examples of the historical validation of Scripture. And this is just a few from many. You're not going to be able to write all these down, but you might write something down that will jog your memory. Now, for example, number one, have you ever heard of a people called the Hittites? You know, the Bible speaks of the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Termites, all of those. No, maybe not the Termites. But the Hittites, the Bible named a group of people called the Hittites. Well, for thousands of years... Up until the 1900s, we didn't know uh, anything about the Hittites. In fact, because of that, people said, and historians said, they were just a made-up group of people in the Bible, and that's why the Bible, you can't trust it, because we, we, there's no hi evidence historically of this people called the Hittites. They're just a made-up group of people. It wasn't really a group of people. By the way, last night, I was watching a show on the History Channel, and they specifically talked about the kingdom of the Hittites. That's the History Channel. They didn't call me and say, do you need any, any uh, evidence or that sort of thing? Listen, but in, up until the early 1900s, people said they didn't exist until a group of archaeologists that were digging in Tur Turkey found the Hittite capital city. And once again, the Bible is proven to be accurate because the Bible was saying the Hittites, Hittites, and they said, no, they don't exist until they suddenly unearthed the Hittite capital. Example number two. Uh, in the early 1990s, um, there, were, there was a book that came out that claimed that David and King Solomon were not real people, that they never really existed, that they were nice stories, but they never really lived. Now, that was terrible timing for that book because three years after that book was published, there were some archaeologists digging in the capital city of an ancient area we call Dan. Go look in your maps in your Bible and you'll see the, the tribe of Dan, that area. They, these archaeologists were digging in that area and they unearthed a stone from 831 B.C. And engraved on that stone was information talking about the house of David of Israel. And, and the people who said David never really existed, they knew they had a problem. And so what they did is they came back and they said, no, that's not, that's not talking about David. You've, you've mistranslated the word there. The word should be translated Dawd, D-A-W-D, and they said Dodd was a pagan god that was worshipped. So it's not talking about David, it's talking about Dodd. And they kept saying that, they kept saying until a year later, as they continued, these archaeologists continued to dig around this, this stone, and they dug down even further, and they found conclusive evidence as it continued to speak about not only David, but about the kingdom of David that he had led and uh, here's, what they, um, here's what they ended up discovering. It was not, it, the stone didn't talk about a, a non-existent David. What they discovered, uh, David existed according to the stone. It was Dawd, D-A-W-D, that didn't exist and as either a person or as a pagan god. In fact, you know what they'd done? They didn't have an explanation, so they just made him up. 
to try to substantiate because they knew if you, if you confess, yeah, we found evidence of the kingdom of David, you've got to look at Scripture different. Hello? So that's a, another example. Then here's a third example. Uh, if you've read in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 5, you've read about Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a king in Babylon. You ever read about that? You know, the handwriting on the wall, that was Belshazzar. And um, skeptics through the years said, well, the Scripture's not reliable because uh, Belshazzar wasn't the last king of Babylon. Uh, Nabonidus was. And and that is true in history. Nabonidus was a part of the last uh, uh, ru- uh, uh, rulers of Babylon. They said, so we know that Nabonidus was the, the king of Babylon before that empire collapsed. And so the Bible can't be right because it says Belshazzar was the, the, um, the king. But guess what? Archaeologists digging, guess what they found? They found that, in fact, both history and the Bible were true. You know who Nabonidus was? What they found out was Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar. And they were co-regents. You get that? So both of them, so the Bible was right, just like history was right, and Bible was right. There's no contradiction. They were both they were both uh, ruling at the same, as co-regents, father and son. But it gets even more interesting than that. If you go and read Daniel chapter 5 and verse 6, I think it is, it talks about how Belshazzar said to Daniel, if you can read the writing on the wall, I will make you one of the three rulers of Babylon. Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and Daniel. See, the Bible, once again, historically is more accurate than what some of the historians have argued. Here's a fourth example. The Bible declares that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. You've heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Archaeologists tell us that that Sodom and Gomorrah were most likely in uh, the same uh, location as the Dead Sea is today. Now, the Dead Sea is an incredible uh, place to visit. You can't sink. You can float in it. I've been there many times. And, you know, in fact, don't open your eyes if you go underwater. You won't see for three days. I mean, it's that salty. But you just lay there. You can't, you, you, look, you can't drown in the Dead Sea. And it's dead. No, there's nothing in the, nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Did you know that? That's why they call it the Dead Sea. And the reason is because the Jordan River flows in at one end, but nothing flows out, so there's, there, there's nothing. But let me tell you, I think an additional reason, and history has proved this, as they were digging and they believed Sodom and Gomorrah was right there in that same area where the Dead Sea is, and it's barren when you go down there. There's a resort hotel there, uh, and that's about it. There's just a little bitty community there that makes a living off of tourists. In fact, we, we go there every time I take a trip, and hopefully next December we're going to take our trip. We were going to this December, but, well, you know, uh, some strange virus hit. But, um, but next year, we're, we'll go, and we'll go to the Dead Sea. And there's, but, but there's nothing there. I mean, uh, uh, it, it's salt. But guess what they discovered some years ago digging in the Dead Sea? It's full of minerals there. They discovered massive amounts of sulfur. Now you say, okay, but God destroyed it with fire and brimstone. Do you know what brimstone is? It's sulfur. Go look it up. A a secular dictionary will tell you that sulfur and brimstone are the same thing. Some of your Bibles will say, my translation actually translates it as sulfur. God rained down fire and sulfur. And they're massive deposits right there in the Dead Sea area. And people now go to the Dead Sea. They, they have hot sulfur baths, and people that have arthritis and different ailments will go and soak in those sulfur baths, and uh, then they smell bad for the rest of their life. Uh, and, and by the way, there's a, there's a whole industry of sulfur, Dead Sea, sulfur-based uh, products that have emerged. You can find many of them at the at a health food store. Th- this has all emerged out of the, the Dead Sea. Isn't that interesting since God destroyed 
Sodom and Gomorrah in that area with fire and sulfur? Example number five, since you ask. There, some years ago, there was a great historian. He was a brilliant scholar. One man described him this way. He said he had more degrees than a thermometer. And uh, his name was Dr. William Ramsey. And he was a historian, particularly he was an expert in Asian Middle Eastern history, and he wasn't a Christian. And in order to disprove the veracity of Scripture, he decided to take a historical book like the book of Acts and study that and show how, that, uh, how it was off, how it was unreliable historically. And he read it, and after he read it, he said this. He said, the book of Acts is a highly imaginative and carefully colored account of primitive Christianity that was not rooted in facts, but is rooted in the imagination. So you know what he did after that? To further substantiate his argument, he went to Asia, and he decided to, to study the book of Acts on location, you know, kind of moving around studying it. And guess what happened as he's studying it? He made a 180-degree turn. He studied the book, book of Luke and the book of Acts. And by the way, Luke was the author of the book of Acts. He studied both of those, and he came to the conclusion that they weren't fantasy. In fact, he wrote a book called The Beloved Physician. And uh, it was a book about the writings and the veracity of the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And let, let me tell you what he, what he said after he went there and he had this turn about. Remember he said before, it's just rooted in fantasy and fairy tales, not rooted in fact. But after he studied it on site with the scripture, this is what he said. And I quote, I now take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in regard to its trustworthiness. Unsurpassed in regard to its trustworthiness. This brilliant man, after studying the facts of Scripture, you know what he said? This historian. He said, the fact is, you can trust the history of God's Word. So there's historical evidence. I could go on and on and on, but I won't. Let's move on for time's sake. The second validation of God's Word is chronological validation. Chronological validation. There is longevity and preservation to the Bible. No book in history has been burned more, ridiculed more, outlawed more, and some have even con conducted its funeral. That's yeah, over. It's history. The Bible's gone. There are those who've said that said 100 years ago, you give it 50 years and it won't exist and things like that. But listen, one man described it this way. He said, the, the funeral has been conducted, but the problem is that the body has actually outlived the pallbearers. We don't have any other books, did you know this, historically or chronologically that have endured like the Bible has. Do you know the closest thing we have in ancient writings to the Bible in terms of preservation of the manuscripts? You know what the closest thing is? Homer's Odyssey. I read it when I was in high school. Maybe you did too. Homer's Odyssey. That's the closest thing we have to Scripture in terms of the number of ancient manuscripts. And listen to this. That doesn't even come close. It doesn't even come close. In fact, the, the, the manuscripts for Homer's Odyssey number in l the less than 100s. The number of manuscripts of the Bible number in the hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of hundreds. There's nothing comparable to how the Bible has endured the test of time. And when you pick up your Bible, you're looking at the most unique book in all of history. Think about that. Now listen carefully. The Bible is one book, but it's made up of 66 individual books. Now listen to what's remarkable about that. These 66 books were written by 40 different authors. They, they range from kings to peasants to doctors to priests. These books were written on three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and they were written over a period of 1,500 years by people that didn't even know each other when they wrote. All of them are unified in their message. 
There's one theme in the Scripture. It is salvation. It runs from Genesis to Revelation. There is one Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and there's one enemy, Satan himself. And this is consistent with all of the writings of 40 different authors, three continents, three languages, over 1,500 years. Listen, do you understand what that means? No human could have sat down and planned this kind of book. Voltaire, the French atheist, he had utter contempt for the Bible, for the church, and for Christians. And Voltaire, in 1764, wrote the Bible, that's what fools have written, and what imbeciles commend, and what rogues teach, and what young children are made to learn by heart. And he ended every letter that he wrote, crush the infamy, the Christian religion. He hated the Bible. He hated uh, the church. But listen to this, Voltaire, 58 years after Voltaire died, and it is rumored that he said while he was still alive, you, you give me 50 years and the Bible will not exist anymore. But 58 years after Voltaire died, the very room where he wrote those things, the very house where he wrote those things in Geneva, Switzerland, was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society to store and distribute the scriptures and tracts about the gospel. God does have a sense of humor. The Bible's still here, Voltaire is gone. Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 23, said, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, you get that? Living and abide. You've been born again through the word, the living word. And then he quotes Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this, he says, is the word, uh, is the good news that was preached to you. Friend, do you understand this book has endured through the ages and its chronology, its endurance through the ages is just one more validation of its supernatural nature. The third thing, though, is a validation of Scripture is its scientific validation. Perhaps one of the areas often cited as inconsistent with the Bible is science. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to give you some examples, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we'll look at a, a volume uh, more of scientific validation when we discuss origins and how we got here and uh, the ideas of evolution, the myth of evolution. But let me give you a couple of thoughts just to remind you that God and science are not in conflict. If you look at the Bible from a scientific view, it is a miraculous book, and it is miraculous what the Bible teaches, and it taught scientific information that was later vali uh, validated by science itself. Uh, so let me give you a few things. Number one, the Bible speaks of the expansion of the universe. But did you know this wasn't known until the 1920s, that the universe is expanding? But the Bible, listen, Thousands of years before said the universe is expanding. Not only that, the Bible also speaks of the spherical nature uh, of the earth. And by the way, that wasn't known until the 1400s because everything prior to Columbus, the earth was thought to be flat, right? But the, did you know long before Columbus, long before the world knew that the world was spherical, the Bible had already told us. Listen to what Isaiah 40, 22. He, God, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain, the expanding universe, and he spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This is what God said hundreds of years before 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You see, scientifically, the Bible was ahead of the game. Another thing the Bible speaks about is how the earth hangs in space, and it spoke about that long before we knew how the planets were arranged. Job wrote about it in 2000 B.C. Listen to what, what Job wrote about. He said, he, God, stretches out the north over the void, listen to this, and hangs the earth on nothing. Long before we had Galileo and, and these who helped us understand the universe in terms of the structure and the planet, 
God had already told us that the earth is hanging out in space. Number three, do you know the Bible's in harmony with a theory of relativity? Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That's relativity. Time, a day is a day to us, but God, a day is relative, right? The theory of relativity, it affirms the theory of rel- relativity. It, by the way, it, the Bible is in harmony with the second law of thermodynamics. Y'all know it's thermodynamics. Aren't you glad you got to come and get this science lesson today? Y'all know what the second, listen, this is huge. And, and if, if a person is an evolutionist, they have to hate the, the second law of thermodynamics. Let me tell you what it is. This is I didn't make it up, but the Bible harmonizes with it. The second law of thermodynamics in science says this, systems run down. Evolution says systems run up, right? Better and better, better. You get better and better. You emerge from a soup to a tadpole to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, an ape uh, to finally uh, a human and all that kind of stuff. You know, system get, keeps getting better and better and better and better and better. But the second law... the the second law of thermodynamics says things wear down. The universe is wearing down. Scientists tell us that the sun is burning out. Now they say it's going to be 10 million years. That's what they tell us before it burns out, but it's burning out. You know, they tell us that things are breaking down. Look at your body. Is it, it's not getting better. You know, you, you, you're always in a fight to preserve the status quo, right? Because it's not getting better. Think about this. Your car, you buy a car, and as soon as you drive it off the lot, they deduct a huge amount from its value. Why? Because that vehicle's already started wearing out. Your car doesn't get better. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I've been driving this thing for 50 years. It just gets better and better and better. Man, it doesn't get better. Your washing machine doesn't wear up, it wears out, right? You understand the second law of thermodynamics? Okay, now listen to what the Bible says. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. But they will perish, but you will remain. Now listen, second law of thermodynamics, they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Isn't that incredible? The second law. Let me give you one more. How about the Bible having answer even sometimes for how to deal with illnesses? I look for a little book. I couldn't find it. It's in my library and it's tucked away somewhere. I've got it in there. It's a little pink book, and I read it many years ago. It's called None of These Diseases by a doctor who was a believer called Dr. S.I. McMillan. You may can still find it, but in that, he talks about different kinds of treatments and and, um, uh, that have been tried through the, the, and he pulls out some bizarre stuff, like how the Egyptians, they they had these uh, doctors, and these doctors would try all kinds of bizarre things. For example, one of the things, Greg, if you were bald, is the Egyptians said, put cat dung on your head, and you won't have any friends, but it would grow your hair. Uh, you know, they, they had all kind of bizarre things. I'm only picking on Greg because we were laughing about some things out before the service started. And, well, Chuck, you know. Um, but, but they had these bizarre remedies for things. It didn't work. And he talks about some of that stuff. But then he talks about some, some things that the Bible prescribed. Are y'all familiar with the Black Plague, the uh, Black Plague of the 14th century, where one in four people died? Now, our, our thing, listen, don't hear me say that our thing isn't serious. We, we ought to take it seriously. But over a third of Europe died. And they couldn't stop it. They could not stop it. They, they tried everything. The, what, and they didn't have the medical technologies that we have. And by the way, let me just put a uh, uh, note in here. The doctors didn't solve it. I love doctors. We have a number of doctors and medical professionals in this church. And I just want you to know, I love you. Keep doing your work. And by the way, you ought to be praying for them because right now they're under a heavy burden. 
I thank God for medicine, and I think they didn't have some of those things. I believe God uses medicine, and I think he uses doctors. So I want you to know that. But it wasn't the doctors in the 14th century. They couldn't figure out what to do. They didn't have some of the technologies. They didn't understand viruses. They didn't understand communicable diseases. They didn't know what to do. And people were just dying and dying and dying, and they couldn't get it stopped and everything. And, and it wasn't the doctors who finally came up with a resolution. It was the church. Do you know that? And you know what the church said? Let's take the device of Scripture. And so they turned to Leviticus 13, 46, where it says, He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. And he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Now, they were referring to people that had diseases like leprosy. But do you know what their solution was? They need, if they're sick, they need to be quarantined. And so they started practicing that. And finally, the plague ended. They got it from the Bible. Now, I, I, by the way, we're hearing a lot about quarantine. And I say this, if you have symptoms, please don't come to church. You know? Um, and and, and stay, stay put. You know, we've had lots of people in this church that have had it. And most of them didn't get it here that I know of. I don't know of anyone recently that got it in church. Not, and I mean in months because we've taken some real strict uh, measures to hopefully prevent that. But, uh, but I'll just tell you this. We, we've all learned about quarantine, right? You know, I had it back in September, and I just came and went wherever I wanted to go. No, I didn't. You know, for a few days until my wife got it, I was locked in my study upstairs. Food was set down at the door, and I, had to, I felt like a prisoner. I had to open the door and get my food go back in until finally when she she began a couple of days in she began to have the same symptoms she said come on out <laughs> and that felt like release you know but we stayed in for a couple of weeks so I'm all for that all right but where did we learn that the bible you see, the Bible and science are not in conflict. Erwin Lutzer has written and said this, the so-called conflict between science and religion simply does not exist because it's impossible for the Bible to contradict science since God is the author of both. Amen? So the fact is that the things that science has affirmed again and again over the millennia are things that the Bible had already, if you look, the Bible had already spoken of. Here's the last thing, and we're done with this. I want you to also say, and this is maybe, to me, the most powerful validation, and that is the practical validation. And this is what we're going to stop with tonight, I mean, this morning. Here's the one thing that I've observed in years of preaching and teaching, and that is that God's Word is powerful beyond description. That's why Hebrews calls the Word of God living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you understand that the Scriptures are alive? They're not just ideas, and, it's, and they're transformative. And I think the greatest validation is the lives of people that have been changed by the truth in this book. This, this room is full of people whose lives have been literally turned around by the truth of this book. Amen? We sang that song, This Is My Testimony. That's what it's saying, man. This is my testimony. I love that song, by the way, Bradley. This is my testimony. I've been changed. I've been transformed by the truth of the gospel, by the truth in this book. Just look around you. And you see the practical evidence of the power of this book. I received a note. I've received a number of them over the years, and they encouraged my heart so much. But I received a note that said, Thank you so much, Pastor Jones, for helping me find God and being saved in your church. God has given me a new lease on life. And then they signed their name. I'm, I want to tell you something. I, that encourages my heart. But I want to tell you, it's not about me. I didn't give them a new lease. And they know that. God gave them a new lease. And he did it through his word. The greatest evidence of, of all to me, to the validity of the word of God, is the multiplied millions of people who are now living new lives in Jesus Christ because of God's word. It's God's dynamite. 
You can sum the scripture up. You can sum the scripture up in this one phrase. Now, this is, listen, I, if you can write this down, write it down, because this is one of those, those so profound truths. And so if you can write it down, write it down. Here it is. I think it can be summed up in one statement, the power of God's word. Here it is. You ready? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's the message. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Listen, don't believe the myth that the Bible is just one of many religious books full of stories that are irrelevant and outdated to most of modern life. This is a love letter sent to you by God. This is a life changer sent to me and you by God. It shows us the way back to God. Someone has said this, the Bible wasn't written uh, to, to tell us how heaven goes. The Bible was written to tell us how to go to heaven. Let me give you this final quick testimony. I'm 61. I preached my first sermon when I was 15 years old. And for the last four and a half decades, I've been preaching God's Word. And I want you to know something. I believe it more today Indeed, that it is the Word of God that I have ever believed in my life. And I believe it is such a need in our lives, especially in such times of uncertainty. I believe it. I love God's Word. I trust God's Word. And I want my life to be governed by God's Word. How about you? Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this magnificent book. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you uh, for giving us truth to build our lives with. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will help us to take serious all that is written in, these, in this, your book. I pray, Father, that you will use the truth in it to daily transform our lives, to show us what you want, what you have, why you created us. And, Lord, I pray for any that do not know you, that the truth in this book, the living truth about your love for us, your death on a cross for our sins right now will permeate their hearts. With heads bowed and eyes closed, those who are joining us by live stream or in this live audience, if you can't say with certainty that you know the Lord Jesus, would you call out to Him right now? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the Scripture says. Would you call out to Him? In your heart of hearts, you can do that right wherever you are. You can say something like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. Thank you for revealing your truth to me about how to live. Help me to build my life on you and with the truth of your word as the building blocks. And Lord, I receive you as my Savior right now. Maybe you say, I've already done that, Pastor, but I know I need to renew my commitment to live my life by the truth of God. Would you tell him that, Lord? I want to I renew myself. I want this book to be the book that governs my life. I believe it, Lord. I trust it, and I want to I live by it. And so, Lord, I want to study it. I want to learn it. I want to stay in it so that you can shape my life with it, so that I'll not fall victim to myths and lies about this book, but instead I'll be transformed by it. Now, Lord, thank you for the prayers that have been offered up to you by those who are watching, those in this building right here today. And I pray, Father, that as they respond to your truth, Father, you will transform their lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you look this way for just a moment before we're gone? To those of you who have joined us by live stream again, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you've been encouraged by the Word of God. But let me ask you to do something. If you prayed a prayer 
to receive Christ, you called out to him to receive him as your Savior and Lord, would you do something? Would you take your tablet or phone or whatever and would you text us a message? Would you text pastor, that word, P-A-S-T-O-R, to this number, 334-384-8080. It should be on your screen. Would you just text that word pastor? We'll take it from there. We know what that means. It means that you called upon the name of the Lord today to be your Savior. Perhaps you say, you know what, I'd like to join Ridgecrest. Scores of people have done that, and I'm planning to get back in church eventually down the road, but right now, uh, I just need a, a church family to connect with, and I want Ridgecrest to be that family. You can join us. T- text that word, join, and we'll know what to do with it. 334-384-8080. By the way, live audience, you can do the very same thing. You can text those same words to us. Uh, maybe you say, I need to be scheduled for baptism. Just text the word baptize and again we know what to do with all that if you're live here today you can take that tear off panel and indicate your decision whether it's to join christ uh, i mean to join our church or to receive christ as your savior or you need to schedule a baptism just check the box drop it in the offering baskets on the way out